0: And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 the Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing so, be it through the free 103.7 the Game mobile app, 1037 the gamecom Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and any other way you consume your favorite podcast from whatever gimmick you use, appreciate you listening in. Now let's waste very, very little time and get right down to brass tacks here, people, and let's get into the three count, and we got to start things off strong because John Moxley just got added to Bloodsport number five. John Moxley loves the Bloodsport shows, now hosted by Josh Barnett, previously by Matt Riddle. And I'm looking forward to Bloodsport five. John Moxley is going to be taking on David Hartsmith Jr., aka real name Harry Smith. Definitely going to be a really good matchup between these two. Moxley said he's looking to take on the toughest in Bloodsport, and that is Harry Smith. And he said, "Quote: I'm going to rip his head off and put it on the wall. That is going to be an absolutely amazing fight, and I can't wait to see the eventual matchup that we we are probably just going to get sometime soon. And that is Josh Barnett versus John Moxley. We need that in our lives. I feel like that's what they're building towards. So give me John Moxley versus Josh Barnett as the end game here." One of the other big news stories of the weekend was Taya Valkyrie signing with the WWE. Reports started to come out. The former Impact Wrestling Knockouts champion announced that she was signing a contract with the WWE. She's one of the longest reigning champs in the Impact Knockouts division. She was that previously 377 days holding the title. This was the first reported by PW Insiders Mike Johnson. And reportedly, you know, she's likely to be announced with the latest class. Aiden joining fellow Knockouts champions Mia Yim and Chelsea Green. During a media call ahead of NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day, Triple H said that you would see soon see soon an influx of talent for the women's division, saying, quote, this current class coming to the Performance Center, this rookie class coming in very soon, is the largest we've had in history. So that speaks to the commitment uh, and where we're going with female performers and seeing them as exactly that, as performers and nothing else and really trying to strengthen that even further, In quote. And the fact that she is, the 37-year-old, is married to John Morrison, opens the door to plenty of possibilities where she'd eventually move to Raw or SmackDown. I'm looking forward to seeing just the fact Taya Valkyrie, she's going to make that women's division even stronger. And that's not even considering the fact that you've also added some other names we'll get to in a few minutes in terms of your NXT roster. But the last bit of news, we talked about Impact Wrestling We've got to bring up probably the biggest headline of the weekend for last. Sammy Guevara apparently causing the first little rift in the AEW Impact partnership is coming from Slam Wrestling reported this one first because Sammy Guevara was apparently supposed to work last week's Impact Wrestling tapings in Nashville and it be a continuation of the angle on Dynamite where Guevara quit the inner circle. And Chris Jericho said to have come up with the idea and the pitch was to use Sammy was rejected the first pitch was rejected by Sammy, and then Tony Khan signed off on the next idea, but Guevara wasn't okay with it. Allegedly, I saw this pop up over the weekend. I'm not sure about 100% the validity of it, but it probably pays more credence to the statement that Sammy Guevara didn't want to do this, is that he was going to be a part of the group decay. And now they've added in Black Torus, and he was part of the matchup at No Surrender, which, by the way, they had a really great triple threat revolver match. We will talk about it much on this podcast, but go anyway and go check that out. Really cool stuff and really innovative idea. It's like a mixture of a, a triple threat match and a gauntlet match. And it's really damn cool. I love it. So it was really cool to see a little bit of a new way of doing things with the X Division. So, I, but also the fact that you had Taurus, Black Taurus, with Rosemary and Crazy Steve, or Crazy Steve, because he has two Zs. And you had that going on. And PW Insider says things between AEW and Impact are golden, but apparently there was there was some rumor, according to SLAM's report, saying that there was a little bit of tension between AEW and Impact, but the reports deny one or both of those things a little bit later on. And according to Uncle Dave, Dave Meltzer, he says the sources told him that Impact opted not to use Kavar after he questioned the plan for him. The version differs on where Sammy stands, Saying at this point there's no significant heat from anyone on either side, but I'm sure it's gonna be brought up somehow, some way in a future BT or even in Sammy Guevara's vlog. I mean, I, I would love to see Sammy just take some time away and then come back with a new look and a new motivation. I think that's the biggest thing. It's like he's done with the inner circle. Give him some time off TV. And I think it'd be great. I think it'd be a great opportunity for him to reset himself and become this new character. A lot like what we saw with Kenny Omega, where Kenny left for a while and then came back and had this whole new persona, and overnight he changed. Now, yes, a lot of that had to do with the Don Callis angle, but I think this version of Kenny is about 100 times better than the version we had been seeing previously. At least it's just my opinion. But now we're going to get to NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day, a fantastic show, probably one of the best NXT TakeOvers of all time. I know that might be a little bit hyperbole, but I loved this show. First, we're going to start off with the pre-show angle where Eli Drake, excuse me, LA Knight makes his debut just before the main card started and cuts a fantastic promo. Let me talk to you. I'm going to put it to you like this. Don't worry about what I'm doing here. You go ahead and take a walk in cell. Ain't nobody trying to hear your prepubescent voice. Right back over here. At least we got somebody with a little bit of bass in their voice. But look at it this way, Wade. I ain't here to suck up to you. Because if you so much as look at me the wrong way, I'll drag your ass out of retirement just to walk you right back in. Because I got the scoop. Standing here right now, you're seeing it. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hey, look at this awkward idiot standing here. Barstool Sports. Hey, That's right. I, got the, I got the scoop for you. Sports scoop. Tell all your friends. Well, give it to Make me. Make it go viral. It's right here. It's NXT. It's LA. It's LA Night. Yeah. Absolutely amazing stuff right there from L.A. Knight. Yeah, can't wait to see what he does in NXT. But now we get to the main card. No, there was no pre-show match, which I was more than okay with. In fact, I kind of forgot the pre-show was going on. Didn't realize it was only thirty minutes. And then all of a sudden, I get text to be like, L.A. Knight. I'm like, what the hell is going on? All of a sudden, I see it's just Eli Drake. I'm like, hell yeah! So I immediately put her on NXT Takeover. The Women's Dusty Classic Finals opened up the show Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez versus Ember Moon and Shotzi Blackheart. Very solid opener, fast-paced, highlighted the strengths of Moon, Blackheart, and Kai with some really cool spots throughout. But the real star was Raquel. Hard-hitting moves throughout the match. She was always an equalizer where Ember Moon and Blackheart were able to take control of the matchup. When Kai was in the ring the second Raquel got involved, the momentum changed clearly in the favor of the Heels. And this worked really well. The finish was awesome, by the way. Because Gonzalez threw Kai onto Shotzi, then hit Blackheart with her finisher, which is like a modified powerbomb. Looked brutal, by the way. And that got the three count. That got the win. So your winners, Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez, absolutely make sense. And remember what I said at the beginning of the year, is that she is go- Raquel Gonzalez is probably going to be the star of the women's division in, in NXT and probably WWE now because... The winner of this is going to get a women's tag team title shot. So who's to say Kai and Blackheart show, don't show up on Raw tonight and vie for the titles and take them from Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler and bring them over to NXT, where there's a lot of other women tag teams. I think it would fit so much better on NXT and take that away from Raw and SmackDown because it just it's out, it's overstated as well, at least on the main roster, because there's not enough tag teams now. I think this might be the right way to go about it, and then you could establish her as an absolute, Freaking monster! So give me that over anything right now. And I said at the beginning of this year, back in the year in review episode, that Raquel Gonzalez is a star to watch, and this might be the step in the right direction. It wasn't match of the night, but it continues to establish that Gonzalez as a dominant monster in the women's division. But again, I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. Is she going to? Are they going to win the tag team titles? Bring them over to NXT, and they become largely an NXT property where they can add a little bit more prestige to it, to the titles, because it's actually teams, and it's not just mismatched people. It, you've established teams in the Dusty Classic, so I think that's the next step. I could be completely wrong here, but hopefully Gonzalez winds up winning a title before the year is over, because I think she has so much potential. Then we get to the North American Championship match. Kushida taking on Johnny Gargano. And the way he came out to start off after Kashida made his entrance. I love the fact that the champ came out second in all those matches. The way he comes out, but Dexter Loomis catches Austin Theory, puts a rag over his mouth, potentially a next North American title feud or just something Austin Theory deals with in the interim while we try and figure out who the hell else is going to fight Gargano at this point. But this was an awesome match. Big story of Kashida attacking the quote unquote injured arm throughout the match and really kind of setting things up. And again, it's. Kashida's really put on some really phenomenal matches in terms of a lot of technical wrestling. And it felt like to a certain extent like a junior heavyweight title match in New Japan. Not necessarily because of all the high spots, but because you had a lot of really crisp, smooth like segues and counters on counters on counters. That kind of stuff I love to see because it absolutely just sells me on how good these two are. Because I can remember... Back in the day watching Angle and He Who Shall Not Be Named at WrestleMania 17 starting off in like a straight-up like old-school wrestling match. These two were just going at it and trading move for move. It just looks so crisp and smooth with these two. It reminded me of that as well, where you had a lot of cool sequences, especially with the Ark Organo escape happening. They had a really great false finish, by the way, where you had, you know, Kashida locking in the armbar for a – Probably, I'd say, a minute or so, if not two. And Gargano almost gets the ropes, then Kushida rolls them around and gets them further away from the ropes. But Gargano's able to get his foot on the ropes, and it's a really creative way to go to get out of the hole. But he also winds up sliding out of the ring, which reminded me a little bit of how like Ring of Honor does things in a pure match after the three rope breaks are exhausted. They basically had to get out of the ring to try and break that hold because it's damn near impossible. You can't really break the hold, especially after you've been under it for a long time. So a lot of pressure was put on you know, Gargano. But Gargano retained it, hitting one final beat. It was a clean finish, and I was surprised at that. But as Johnny Takeover continues to put together another great match in his never-ending resume of great NXT Takeover matches. though people probably crap on him a little bit too much, but I love his stuff. It was a great storytelling over 24 minutes. It helped make the injury action even more enhanced. The subplot of Gargano doing this all by himself, since Candice Array and Indy Hartwell wound up going over to to see where the hell Austin Theory went. All the stuff, amazing. And it was also probably the best NXT North American title match one v one because obviously the match to crown the first ever champion, the latter match stands alone on its own as another like fantastic match. It was a five star match for a reason, but this I think deserves to be that other five star match that we can talk about for years to come. Then we get some men's dusty classic final. It's MSK, the former rascals Wesley and Nash Carter, taking on the grizzled young veterans. This was a banger, and it it was hard to think about it. Like right after the match, it's like how the hell are they going to follow this? This is almost impossible standard to follow, and then they. Built it up again. Hit another high note. So damn good to see that. MSK being the new guys on the block. Multiple stories here. Contrasting styles where MSK is a lot more high-flying. Then you have Nash Carter's personal story with his father. So damn good. Really cool spots throughout the match. One of the big highlights for me: Wesley doing the ricochet dive over the turnbuckle. Just looked like something out of PWG to a certain extent with those two. While you had Grizzly Young Vets, hard-hitting, absolutely brutal moves. A lot of double teams throughout. Almost every single one was on Grizzly Young Vets. Double team maneuvers was a 2.9 count. And every one of them looked like it could have been the finish, but it wasn't. And I love the fact they had like multiple moves where they were exhausting their entire library. Almost hitting their big like ultra finisher. But MSK wound up hitting their finisher to win the Dusty Cup. They even got the hot fire, hot fire Flame in, and they made it even cooler because of the fact they had another member of Grizzly Young Vets on the side of it. So where he jumped over him, too, with the Hot Fire Flame. And the fact they did that, I popped for like crazy because that was probably whenever they debuted in Impact. Because I'd never seen much of the stuff in PWG. Then again, I don't normally buy the DVDs. So I don't see a whole lot of it. But my God, that move is so badass. It needs to be used a lot more. This was the right team, the right time, the right place. Absolutely loved the way they paid off this storyline. Then we get to the NXT Women's Title match, Triple Threat: Tony Storm, Mercedes Martinez versus Io Shirai. Early on, before the introductions even got started, the heels jumped on her, and she was the war was on between those three. Io wasn't used nearly as much as you'd like, but she was definitely used well enough in terms of really cool spots. Really fun match. It wasn't phenomenal. It was a step down from the previous two matches, but it was still pretty damn fun. At one point, Tony Storm set, was trying to put together, uh, trying to like, tear apart the announce table. Lo and behold, she breaks the table just by touching it. And I absolutely laughed my head off at that. That was I had never seen something like that, and I could not stop laughing at it. Then the memes came out. And that alone was just amazing in and of itself, especially after what we saw last week with Nia Jackson, the My Whole Thing. That meme in and of itself was awesome. But we get to see more memes like this. I think I saw somebody say on Twitter, you know, the, and I was like, oh, sorry, Tony, that's never happened before. I just thought you were really pretty, and I laughed at that so hard. But right after that, Shirai kind of saved the day because it, it felt like that was going to be a cool, a big spot where, you know, Shirai maybe jumps off the off the truss and lands on somebody on the announce table? I don't know. But she managed to like improvise a little bit with the crossbody off the truss in the Capitol Wrestling Center. looked fantastic. Martinez and Storm went at it later on. And then Shirai quickly hitting the, the moonsault on both of them. And Pin Martinez, who was underneath it all, for the victory. Really good stuff. Really good transitions throughout the match. Well done. Expected EO to win, but a really fun finish. Probably like the second worst match of the night. And that's not saying it was bad. It just wasn't at the level as some of the other three matches on the card. Which the other match that stood out to me the most. Pete Dunne versus Finn Balor. The NXT Championship match. This was hard hitting action. It's not necessarily something you think about when you think about Finn Balor. But that's kind of changed since his second run in NXT. Where it's a lot more hard hitting. Not necessarily relying as much on the coup de to finish job. He winds up going for it a couple times. But it all eventually meant something. Dunn kept teasing he was going to snap Balor's fingers throughout and didn't really do it until like later on. They had a really good spot at one point where Balor was trying to go for the finish, hitting the coup de gras, But Dunn countered it with the triangle choke. Finn was able to get to a rope just before passing out. A nice 2.9 before on the bitter end. Really great. Again, false finishes are great. If you can do it well enough, if you can, if you don't do it every single time in a match like five or six times, if you do it a couple times, it can work really well. And this is a prime example of that. That the finish was fantastic. Balor took the mouth guard out of Dunn's mouth, hit him with the shotgun drop kick into the Cooter Girl in the nineteen sixteen to retain the title. Absolutely fantastic finish, and it made sense for everything. Then after the match, Oni Lorcan and Danny Burst trying to get the heat back on Pete Dunne after losing the match. They come out to beat down Finn Balor, but Undisputed Air comes out. Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly, Roderick Strong. They all come out to save the day. Kyle immediately checks on Finn, helps him up. Obviously, the respect for these two has already been established like months ago. This has already kind of been developed, the storyline between Kyle O'Reilly and you know Finn Balor. And they're about to start posing and the show's about to wrap up. You got the little logo, and you know that if you stay long enough for the logo, you need to stay for the post credit scene. It's like an Avengers movie, and this is a prime example of why you stick around. Why that's a false flag. And the all of a sudden out of Cole super kicks Finn Bauer. The group starts to argue. Cole super kicks O'Reilly out of frustration and leaves Strong alone. As he's torn about whether or not to stick with his stablemate in Cole or Stick with his guy, Kyle O'Reilly. So we get Undisputed Era, Civil War, and there's so many different angles to go about this, so many layers to this story. It's Civil War. Could Vin Bauer now take over Undisputed Era and make it into his own image, the Bauer Club? Could he do something like that? I don't know, but I'd love to see. I'm wanting to see where this whole thing goes. That's what I'm wanting. But to me, you know, I was wondering for a while, Were they ever going to break up? You know, the Undisputed Air has been around for about, I'd say, four years. You know, it's been three and a half years, I would say, overall. But, but like, rounded up to about four years, the group has been together. It never felt like they were ever going to break up because they were just such good friends in and outside the ring. But this was the perfect way to break it up and a perfect way to end. Again, I think probably the greatest. And that's like no hyperbole, no cap. The best NXT TakeOver I've ever seen because you had three legendary matches probably close to instant classics. That's where we're at. And that was well worth the price of admission. Very well done. Congratulations to NXT for getting it done. And they did something else. I'll talk about the end of the podcast, because it is amazing, and you have to hear it. So we got that going on. But really great stuff right there from NXT TakeOver Vengeance. Vengeance Day, I should say. Really great way to celebrate Valentine's Day by watching Vengeance Day. They also had a really cool intro with uh, Josiah Williams doing a promo, or a rap, a freestyle rap about Valentine's Day, and wanting NXT to be his Valentine. Really cool stuff, thought that was cute. And really cool. Now we gotta get then we're gonna get to some other stuff involving A.E.W. Dynamite on Wednesday. Absolutely loved it. Especially the main event. Kenta versus Kenta and Kenny Omega taking on John Moxley and Lance Archer. So damn cool. Falls count anywhere. No disqualification. They went everywhere in this match just so nuts to butts throughout the entire show brawling in the kitchen during the after they came back from break it was just so many potatoes being thrown around absolutely completely insane and of course Omega and Kenta get the win thanks to the good brothers absolutely amazing and I can't wait to see what's next I saw some rumor in your window didn't talk about it in three count but if Okada shows up in AEW, I'm going to mark the hell out because Okada is the last person I'd want to see if I'm Kenny Omega or anybody else. Imagine if he shows up in Impact Wrestling. I said this to somebody I texted over the weekend when I saw the news about Okada. If Okada shows up in Impact Wrestling, everybody's going to die. Okada is going to kill everybody in Impact. It's going to be his revenge for what happened about 10 years ago when he was the Green Hornet or Kato. That's what it was. It was Kato. He's basically the Kato in TNA, and you know that thing is, he has never forgotten about that. So, yeah, they got that for it, which is nice. Now, we get to something I've been wanting to do for a while. Last week we didn't get to it, this week we will. And it is the catalog of CD. I settle things once and for all and drop my definitive tier list of every. WrestleMania match from some of the icons. We're going to do it every year. This will be the first ever edition of it. And we'll do one next week. i have not going to unveil what that is. But the first one I was going to do had to be The Undertaker. The dead Man. He had to be the first ever catalog of CD tier list. Because, well, he is the legend, the icon. We put it together on Tier Maker. We'll have it up not long after the podcast drops. Up on our Twitter account, at Cajun CajunStrongStyle, C-A-J-N, StrongStyle, on Twitter, all one word. Make sure you go check it out when you get the chance. And it's interesting to see how things will stack up. And also, for what it's worth, we're going to leave Undertaker-John Cena's match out of the conversation because it's not really a match. It's almost an angle. I'm going I'm to take that out of the conversation. I know it's controversial, but it only lasted a few minutes and really didn't showcase anything worthwhile to me. It didn't feel... Like a true match on paper. So I'm going to go ahead and put that to the side. I'm going to put that to the side because I have no real take on it. It's not that it's great moment, but it's not as much a great match. It's not as much a match to me. But when it comes to matches, I'm going to go ahead and go one by one each and every WrestleMania that The Undertaker's been in. Starting in WrestleMania 7, Jimmy Snuka versus The Undertaker at the beginning of the streak. And this is your typical Undertaker fare. I mean, Undertaker had been started out at Survivor Series, so you still got to see this kind of dead man. It was very plodding matches. Undertaker dominated. It was short, sweet, sweet to the point. I believe it was about six minutes. Snooker got some momentum going, but Undertaker ducked across body. This ended up flying out of the ring, and it looked like a rough bump. Snooker goes for a springboard. Never had seen him do that before, by the way. That was awesome. But Taker catches him. It's a little sloppy. And that sets up the Tombstone Driver. My tier rankings go like this. Just so you know, going forward, this is how it's going to be. All-timer. Instant Classic. Legendary. What a match. Oh, it was a match, excuse me. Trash. And minus five stars. That's the rating list we're going to have for this podcast. And for me, it was a match. It was fine. Not necessarily the legendary stuff we'd see further on down the road, but it was a good start for The Undertaker in starting his legacy and served the purpose of putting over the dead man. Little did we know this was the first step of his legacy. WrestleMania 8, Jake Roberts versus The Undertaker. Roberts had a great promo before this match because the feud had started all the way back when Roberts attacked Undertaker and Paul Bear on the funeral parlor, but Taker ran him off. Gorilla had a great line before the match saying that eerie smelled of formaldehyde is when you're around the Undertaker. You smell it all the time. And Brain said, I thought you're, that was your cologne. And I laughed my head off of that. Roberts went on offense right out of the gate, but Taker no-sells every single move and takes over after he gets clotheslined over the top rope. And it's largely all Undertaker until Roberts hits the DDT, but doesn't go for the cover. So Bear used the power of the urn to get Undertaker to sit up. Roberts steals another DDT, and it's more the same. Roberts gets distracted by Bear, and Undertaker hits the tombstone on the outside then rolls them in the ring for the three-count and wins. Again, it was a match. Fun up to the feud, but not much to write home about. At least to me. Then we get to Giant Gonzalez versus The Undertaker at WrestleMania 9. And I'm just going to go ahead and waste no time. Minus five stars! That's what this match was. It was god-awful. It was an abomination of a match. There was no saving this thing. Who had the idea to put Giant Gonzalez in a bodysuit with fur? It was the dumbest thing ever. I'll never understand it. And it made me realize how much great Kali was probably better than Giant Gonzalez because this reminded me so much of him. It was ridiculous. All of his movements, he's slightly faster, but every single strike reminded me of Giant of the Great Kali. That's not good. And then the match ends with a DQ after Gonzalez smothers Undertaker, but it takes five freaking minutes for them to declare the winner. You knew that was against the rules. He used the weapon. He used a of that could probably kill most people. Use that. In the ring. The commentary sucked. This match sucked. Minus five stars all the way around. This is probably the worst WrestleMania match of all time. No hyperbole. No cap. WrestleMania 11. Undertaker versus King Kong Bundy. Larry Young, an umpire. Did some uh, the baseball lockout that year. And he's a special guest referee. It's just a thing. And for the most part, you know, Kama Mustafa comes out and says he's going to make a chain out of him. I guess that's where the Undertaker got to start. I don't know. Very weird. And this was a trash match on the tier list. This was trash. King Kong, Bundy just wasn't great. It wasn't as bad as Giant Gonzalez, but still pretty darn bad. WrestleMania 12. WrestleMania 12 taking on Diesel. Worst year for the WWF ever. And this was just not a fun one to rewatch. I think it's. I'm going to put that in the trash tier list. Maybe it's the fact I just didn't like the Diesel gimmick for a while. So yeah, that was a thing. Then we also have WrestleMania 13, Psycho Sid. Trash. Again, more of the same. Just wasn't fun to watch. Just very boring. And again, I think there's a lot of stuff that he has early on in his career, up until probably 17, which I'll talk about in a minute. WrestleMania 15, trash. Nearly a minus five stars rating for me because it was god awful. And not the fact he had the really weird, like, trash angle that you always remember seeing him get hung. From the, top of the hell in a, from the Hell in a Cell. It's a cool visual, but the post-match angle just absolutely sucked. And this match was kind of just okay. I almost gave it five stars, but I want to reserve that for more of the really trash ones. Oh, and then WrestleMania 14, I kind of skipped that one, sorry. WrestleMania 14 against Kane was trash. Story being told was great. The build-up towards this was great, but the matches didn't do anything for me. WrestleMania 17, Triple H, my tier ranking for this, legendary. Just a full-blown brawl all around the arena and some awesome spots. Triple H getting chokeslammed off of the little sub they had, and the crowd was absolutely insane and awesome, and it ruled. So Triple H is a legendary match. The first really good Undertaker match at WrestleMania. And I mean good in the sense of, like, hey, this is the tier that we always think about the Undertaker being at at the show of shows. And this was the next one, WrestleMania 18 versus Ric Flair, is where the streak became what it was, because this was his 10th straight WrestleMania that he won, and it was a legendary match. Peak Flair in WWE, and Undertaker really brought the best out of him at this point. A phenomenal match between these two, and this was at a point when when Ric Flair was insecure about himself to a certain extent in a lot of these matches, so he's legendary for me in this one. WrestleMania 19, A-Train versus Big Show. Trash, damn near minus five stars. Absolutely awful. And again, I feel like that should be reserved for the worst ever. This was pretty damn close. But A-Train versus Big Show, if you had Nathan Jones, it would probably been minus five stars. But this is one of the worst matches Undertaker's ever had and it was completely pointless and it sucked. They would get to WrestleMania 20 versus Kane. It was better than the last one, but not much better. I have it as a, it was a match in my tier rankings, which is right in the middle. I think it's a C-plus match at best. Then we get to WrestleMania 21, Randy Orton. The moment when the streak really started to become a thing and everybody wanted to talk about the streak. Yes, the streak became a thing whenever Undertaker did the 10, but this is whenever you knew, oh, hey, this is like a marquee main event. WrestleMania 22, absolutely the best match from WrestleMania outside of Angle Michaels. Instant classic. First one on that list, Undertaker begins to have a career renaissance at this point. The Tombstone into RKO, Chokeslam into RKO, all that stuff. Absolutely amazing, kick-ass, really overall phenomenal match, and really put over Orton as a future star for that company. He was already kind of getting there, but this was that moment where you were able to realize, hey, he's so damn good as a heel versus a face. It's so much better. Then WrestleMania 22, Mark Henry, probably his worst mid-2000s, early 2010s match, but not really his fault. It's against Mark Henry, a casket match. My tier ranking, it was a match. Then we get to Batista at WrestleMania 23. This is where Undertaker really starts to make his run as like a guy that is able to put together banger after banger after banger at Mania. This is one of those absolutely fantastic match, really cool finish. Undertaker wins that one, wins the World Heavyweight title. That he does it again the next year, WrestleMania 24, taking on Edge. Really great main event match between these two. Edge looked great in defeat. A legendary match that felt like that was the gold standard, but nope. Shawn Michaels got to show up and outdo himself two years in a row. All-timers, 25 and 26, both all-timers. Shawn Michaels was the best WrestleMania match of all time at 25, bar none. 26 was even better was really good. It was almost better. But my god, you could always say this was the match that made you like pull so hard for The Undertaker to get that win. And you pulled hard for Shawn Michaels to break the streak. And honestly, you just sat there and enjoyed one of the greatest matches in WrestleMania history. And a great sequel. Triple H at WrestleMania 27. Instant classic. Very similar to the brawl of WrestleMania 17. We saw a lot of really cool spots of them using the entire arena, using exploring the space rather than it be just inside the 20 by 20 squared circle. Really great stuff. I know they got fined for a chair shot in the match, which was still weird to think about to this day, but amazing stuff. Then we get to Triple H, Hell in a Cell, WrestleMania 28. It was an instant classic. The That was probably the best False finish in an Undertaker match of all time. The sweet chin music and the pedigree. That should have been the death now. But Undertaker kicks out. Such a great match. Probably should have been his last match of his career. If you're going to make it an end of an era, that should have been the end of the road. WrestleMania 29, CM Punk, legendary tier list. It's really good. I feel like that's a match that I can go back and watch multiple times over. And say, hey, you know, if there was a guy to have beaten the streak outside of Brock, that would have been one to take the ultimate rub and build that. And maybe I'm just a CM Punk bark, But really good match between those two. I have it in the legendary tier. WrestleMania 30, Brock Lesnar, legendary. Absolutely incredible matchup between these two. Really great finish. And the fact Brock Lesnar won the shock value. It's the last great shock moment of all time at that time. Obviously, the whole AEW partnership with Impact and New Japan, that's a different level. But this was like the last great bastion of, of sports entertainment for a while. So that's why I have it as a legendary match. Bray Wyatt, it was a match for us 31. It felt like Undertaker just was checked out. He could have probably gone away for a year and saved himself. WrestleMania 32 versus Shane McMahon. I think this is a legendary match. So much fun. And I, I we hate the call of for the love of mankind. But damn, that elbow drop spot is really good and almost iconic. I wish they didn't show where the landing pad was. But it is what it is. WrestleMania 33, Roman Reigns. It was a match. It was fine. Did its purpose. Felt like Undertaker was a couple steps behind. And, fe- and you could just tell... That wasn't his best effort. Then we get to the main event. WrestleMania 36 of night one. The Boneyard match against AJ Styles. I'm going to get some controversy here. Because if I didn't put the Cena one at 34, I got to put this one 36. And it's an all-timer. It is an all-timer, 100%. It's probably the best cinematic match of all time outside of the Firefly Funhouse. But it is so damn good. It is an all-timer. The way the entire thing works, mixtures of comedy with Undertaker, bringing back the biker gimmick for one more ride. We've got to out it would be his last ride. Just so much went into that. And it made the Undertaker look great as he made his way out of the professional wrestling business. So this was without a doubt the best thing to happen to the Undertaker and his Second best match of all time at WrestleMania and probably of his career because the other one is Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 25. But that's about all that we got for the podcast this week. I'll put the link out for you to make your decision on what was the best of worst Undertaker matches at WrestleMania. But we're going to leave you with one more thing, and it's going to be entertaining, so make sure you... Leave us a five-star review, a six-star if you're in the Tokyo Dome. And appreciate you listening to the Cage Strong Style Podcast. We'll be back with you next week with a review of Elimination Chamber 2021, another tier list, and so much more.